Well, let me ask you a question. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? Lex, what do you think? <laughs> Put you on the spot. Do we have a spotlight? Just kidding, Lex. That's exactly right. It's epistemology. Does anybody know what epistemology is? Who would have thunk that you would come here on a Sunday morning at at Independent Bible Church and learn about epistemology? Let me just explain what epistemology is. Episteme, it means knowledge. All our language, by the way, comes from like the Latin roots. So episteme means knowledge. Ology is the study of. So epistemology is the study of knowledge. Specifically, how we know what we know. It's not just facts and figures. It's why we know what we know. It's how we come to the conclusion of what we know. And it's, uh, epistemology is unique from anything that we might think we know or just some other ideas and thoughts that we might have in our mind because it distinguishes what is uh, kind of contrast between justified belief or factual belief as opposed to mere opinion. And so epistemology is how, we, how do we come to the place that we know what we know? Now, there's all kinds of, of ways in which we come to know things. And people that study, you know, that, are, that study epistemology, they're philosophers, and they're, they're always kind of getting kind of these details that most people don't even bother or want to kind of dive into. But there's some people that actually love this, and they, they want to know, like, why do we come to these conclusions? And so there's ways which we don't consciously acknowledge at all times, but there's ways that we come to know certain things in life, certain truths in life. Uh, For example, one of the ways we know something to be true is by personal experience. I grew up in Alaska. Every kid that grows up in Alaska in the wintertime on the playground always learns something very quickly. They always try it once. And the, the ones that need a little bit more time maybe try it twice. Every kid puts their tongue on the frozen swing, the swing set, right? And every kid loses a layer of skin on their tongue. It's always a dare. You're always kind of like, I wonder if I'm an exception to the rule. And you learn through personal experience that you are not. So one of the ways we come to know things, one of the ways we know something to be true is through personal experience. Another way we come to know things in life is through tradition, what has always been accepted to be true. Now, does tradition in and of itself is not wrong. Sometimes we can decry tradition because, ah, oh, everything's so traditional. We need something new. We need something fresh. But sometimes things are just true in a timeless manner. Things are just always true. And I know Pastor Mike has uh, included this example many times over. It's, 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 it's been commonly used. In, in fact, even in my reading this week, it was kind of raised again. But the classic example is the ham that's cut on both ends, right? Why do we cut the ham on both ends? Because that's what mama did. Why did mama do that? Because that's what her mama did. Why did her mama do that? Because that's what her mama did. Why did great-great-grandma do it? Because the pan was too small and the oven was too small. So we have these traditions, but sometimes we don't wonder, like, well, why do we actually do what we do? Well, because we think there's a certain, like, strategy, and there's something, chem- uh, like, chemically going on when we do this certain thing, and actually it's just like, no, it was very practical and functional. It was a, 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 a necessary means to get the ham cooked for the family. 
So tradition can be a way, but it's not just limited to, obviously, mother-in-laws or anything. It's also, you know, government, educators, pastors, successful business gurus. All of them can have a certain tradition based on what they, have, what they pass along, what, they, what they've kind of learned or discovered over the years, and then those things continue on from generation to generation. Another way in which we know things in life is through selective observation. What I mean by that is you see what you want to see. You probably don't realize you do this more often than you realize. You see what you want to see. Again, growing up up in Alaska, this happened constantly in the wintertime. Here in Northwest, we look out for deer. In Alaska, we look out for moose. Imagine elk just running across the road all the time. It's not just like, oh, I got a fender bender. No, a moose destroys your vehicle and maybe you at the same time. And so on the way home, we'd be driving through, and of course in Alaska, they, they have like a 50-foot swath of clear cut on either side of the road to keep the moose off to the side, and that way you, uh, you, can, you can drive, and hopefully they are not encouraged to come on the easy path called the highway. And so, but you're, the whole time you're driving home, you're always looking for moose, and it's, it's really dark in the wintertime, uh, the sun goes down very early, and you have the reflection of the snow, and every time, you're just looking the whole time for moose. Every time I, and I lived a half hour away from pretty much everything, every single time I saw about 80 or 90 moose. I didn't actually see 80 or 90 moose, but every shadow looked like one. You see what you want to see. You see what you're looking for, even if it's not there. In other words, sometimes there might have been a moose, but most oftentimes you're seeing a shadow like, oh, was that? And then you drive, I go, oh, that wasn't it. Oh, that wasn't one. But you see what you're looking for or what you want to see. So that's another way we know things, or at least we think we know things. Another way is overgeneralization. Uh, and this happens very common, too, where our limited observations convince us of a much more broad or common pattern in life. Uh, for example, you might think that uh, because you did not get a job at your first job interview that you make this conclusion, I'll never get a job. Well, why would you make that conclusion? Well, because I didn't get the job in my first interview. And so we make this huge overarching assumption or conclusion that this will never happen, maybe out of discouragement, um, or maybe we're making assumptions about another culture based off of one or very limited interactions with someone from that culture, right? You meet somebody, it's like you meet a British person, like, wow, you sound really smart. All British people must be really smart because they talk differently than we do, you know? Or, or this person, you know, we, we oftentimes, and again, I'm trying to be really careful about this because this PC culture we live in, but sometimes when we meet Asian people, you're like, oh, all Asian people are really smart because we have Asian people here in the United States that are on either doing exchange or whatever it may be. And sometimes we make this conclusion that all Asian people love math and science when that may not really be true. In fact, it's not true. But we make certain conclusions based off of very limited interactions. It's called overgeneralization. And then oftentimes, feeling in and of itself can be a reason why we know what we know, right? If it just feels right, it must be right, right? I feel like this is the right answer. This resonates with me, so therefore, it must be true. Again, there's, these are just a sample of how we come to know things, why we think what we know to be true. Everything we know to be true or what we think is true comes from employing a, a variety of deductive reasoning methods. Philosophy lesson 101 is over. Let me ask you another question. 
How do you know what you know regarding spiritual matters? How do you know what you know in regard to spiritual matters? How do you know that God is real, for example? How do you know that salvation is available only through Jesus Christ by faith? How do you know there's even an afterlife? Now, granted, we could go back to what we just talked about because I was taught that. That's the tradition I grew up within. That seems to make sense. But the, 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 the more foundational answer or the kind of the first part of the answer should be, I know things in regards to spiritual matters only because primarily or first and foremost because of that is what the scriptures say. In other words, I know things in regards to spiritual matters because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible is God's revelation to us for all things spiritual, for all things eternal, all things of most importance. Now, just to kind of give you an idea where we're coming from in our, our membership series, we've kind of done an overarching series of just what is membership, what is the church, why we think it matters. Here's this reciprocal relationship between church leadership and church members. What is a healthy church member in some capacities? And now we're actually in this process called uh, the statement of faith. We're going to be going through our statement of faith, and there's a reason for that. We, this might seem elementary to us. This might seem like, oh, these are just, I mean, I know all these things. But one thing I have learned over 10 years of being a pastor here is that I don't want to make any assumptions about what we think we know here. Because sometimes we may think we know something, or we may actually be very adamant about what we know, but not know why we know what we know. And so we're going to go through our statement of faith, because the statement of faith is not exhaustive on all things spiritual. That's not the intent, but it is to establish a very clear foundation, and in a most practical sense, if you were wanting or hoping to become a member of this church family, if you're wanting to take that next step, and as the Lord leads, then this statement of faith would be something that you would have to agree with, non-negotiable. There are a lot of things we can agree to disagree with, but what we are going to go through the next, uh, by the end of January, is non-negotiable, okay? So what, oh, I forgot my clicker. We don't have them anyways, so it doesn't matter. Okay. Thanks for that little power there. Sorry about that. So the first statement or first affirmation in our statement of faith as a church is this. We believe that the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to be verbally inspired by God. Let me just say it again. We believe the Holy Scriptures, which is both the Old and the New Testament, which, by the way, you could just say the Testament. Old and New can be almost a distraction that's unnecessary. To be verbally inspired by God, and that it is eternal, it's immutable, it's supreme, it's authoritative, it's authentic, and it's the infallible rule of faith and practice. Did you get all that? Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, there's a lot there. And obviously, I was going to have it seen, but apparently not. So uh, that way you could see, because sometimes seeing and hearing allows it to kind of sink in a little bit deeper. What I will do is I will make sure that these come out tomorrow. 
and that way you can have these notes as a way of follow-up or in hindsight at least. So this will all be uh, given to you tomorrow morning on Newsline, so be on the lookout for that. Let me say it again, and then we'll just unpack that. We believe the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to be verbally inspired by God, and that it is eternal, immutable, supreme, authoritative, authentic, and the infallible rule of faith and practice. Let's break those apart and, and digest that a little more slowly. First affirmation we need to understand in this statement is this. The Scriptures are inspired by God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, sometimes when we hear the word inspiration, we might think of inspiration something like this, like, oh, I saw a beautiful landscape, and so I was inspired to take a picture, right? Or, or I, I saw someone's garden and it inspired me to want to also start a garden, right? I was, uh, I, I, when I read this book, I was inspired to make some changes in my life. So uh, on one hand, we can think of inspiration as, uh, as, as something that we are inspired to do. It evokes a response of some kind based on what we have observed or seen. But that's not necessarily what Scripture means when it speaks of inspiration. When Scripture speaks of that all Scripture is inspired by God, what, it, what its meaning is that all, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Or more specifically, all Scripture comes from God. It's not just evoking a response, though it does, but it's, the, it's, it's, it's describing the fact that Scripture is not someone's opinion. It's not just a summary of some things that God might have said in history past, but it's the original writings. It's understanding that the original writings, the original scriptures, the original manuscripts are the very words of God. It sort of begs another question. Aaron, we don't have the original manuscripts today. And if we don't have the original writings today, and all we have are translations or transcriptions of those things, can I actually trust the Bible that I hold in my hands today? Is the Bible I hold in my hands today trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can I, can I actually believe and rest in the fact that the Bible I hold in my hand today is in fact still sacred and pure and the very words of God? And I believe the answer is an, an emphatic yes. That brings us to our second point. Not only are the scriptures inspired, but they are also authentic. Now let me ask you a question before I kind of unpack what that means. Let me ask you this question first. Do you believe that God is able to preserve the integrity of scripture for us today? Do you believe that God is able to superintend over every potential obstacle? That includes human fallibility. That includes Satan's attacks and oppression. That includes uh, horizontal persecution by others, whatever it may be. Do you believe that God is able to superintend over every obstacle in order to give us an authentic and therefore trustworthy revelation of himself today? Do, we believe, do you believe that? 
You see, I think that's a, a very critical or, or crucial first question we must come to grips with because if you do not believe that this is possible, or maybe you just got a middle of the ground here, you believe it's possible but God didn't do that, then the scriptures you hold in your hand will always be somewhat suspect in nature. If you don't believe that God is able to give us a pure, sacred revelation today, that he's not able to pull that off, so to speak, then it's, it's, you're always going to have a seed of doubt in your mind going, yeah, I know maybe he could, but I don't think it's possible. I know the telephone game. One thing after another, it gets so distorted after some time. So how in the world can I really accept that Scripture, the original manuscripts, are really something that we can hold to dearly today and say, yes, this is the Word of God? Perhaps the question is, what evidence is there to support such authenticity? First, let me just say this about Scripture's authenticity. When we, th- when we talk about authenticity, we are really talking about the consistency of Scripture with ancient texts thousands of years ago. I can go through a lot of examples. The one, probably most prominent or popular one is the Dead, Sc- said Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered um, uh, back in, uh, I think it was the 60s, 48, yeah, the 40s and stuff. Uh, and they were, and after all the the appropriate forensic uh, science going on behind it, they they discovered that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written between 120 and 100 BC. That's before Christ. And so what we see, as they unwrapped it and preserved it and started making some, some careful observations about what is the scripture saying then, and as opposed to the scripture that we hold in our hands today, it was like it was about 98% Word for word, exact. And the other ones were so, the the things that weren't exact were just these obscure things that had nothing to do with the message or intent of this book. Just one example of going, oh wow, these things are thousands of years old. And yet, from then till now, it's the same scripture. The fact is we also have thousands and thousands of manuscripts that have been transcribed and then therefore translated even today that are all consistent with one another. We never doubt Plato's writings or Socrates' writings, which we have six or seven of. But sometimes scripture gets thrown under the bus even though there's thousands of consistent manuscripts that all continue to complement one another. So we see that One aspect of Scripture's authenticity is its consistency. But another aspect of Scripture's authenticity is its trustworthiness. And that's for a variety of reasons. For example, the unity of the Bible. Think about the Bible in this way. The fact that the Bible does not contradict itself, though I know some people will continue to try to keep pushing that argument forward to no avail, But the fact that the Bible does not contradict itself is quite impressive because here's the thing. The Bible was written over a span of between 1,500 and 2,000 years, and it was written by over 40 different authors from various walks of life. Moses was educated in Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. Amos was a shepherd. Matthew was a tax collector. And they're all written in a variety of places, Asia, Europe, Africa. Moses wrote in the Sinai Desert. Paul wrote in prison. Daniel wrote in exile in Babylon. 
And it was written under a variety of circumstances. King David wrote during a time of war. Jeremiah wrote during a sorrowful time in Israel's downfall. Peter wrote while Israel was under, under Roman rule. Joshua wrote while invading the promised land. All these writers addressed a variety of different issues. And when you put all of it together, there's just this, this incredible unity that exists around one predominant theme, and that is God's redemption of mankind and creation. It's almost as if one author wrote it. It's as if one author was guiding the minds and the hands of these authors for one specific purpose. Much like what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, and no, one, and no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Once again, not only is Scripture inspired by God, but the very words of Scripture are really God-ordained and superintended through human authors. There's also external evidence that we can look to as well. There's some fancy terms out there like the indestructibility of Scripture. In other words, the Bible has gone through more scrutiny than any other historic text to date and combined. And yet, after a constant attack, it continues to prove itself over and over again to be true. We can look at the archaeological evidences. This was fascinating to me, by the way, when I was kind of, re, kind of coming back into some things, that facts and figures that I had learned in seminary and, and different aspects and have kind of long since forgotten. But now I get the chance to come back and I get to deliver it to you. Like, think about this, for example. In Genesis 14, Abraham writes and speaks, or Moses writes about Abraham's victories over these five Mesopotamian kings. And for the longest time, these, these, this, this account was always seemed fictitious because there was no archaeological evidence to support such claims. It was just kind of like this was a, a, just a, a story that continued on. It was fabricated by someone else. And it wasn't until, again, the 1960s, actually, where ancient tablets were discovered talking about these five kings of the Mesopotamian area that Abraham had destroyed. We have the story of Jericho. That in and of itself is, in an engineering mindset, is opposite of what you would expect. The walls of Jericho fell out. From an engineer's perspective, they should have fallen in. But they didn't. And of course, everybody goes, that's crazy. It must have been a misprint or a mess have been miswritten. There's no way those things don't happen until they found archaeological evidence and all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, all the walls of the historic site of Jericho fell out. That's interesting. Just what the scripture had said happened. Or we had fulfilled prophecies, right? There's an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel where Ezekiel prophesied about the mighty city of Tyre that would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and that many nations would fight against her and the debris of that city would be thrown in the ocean and the city would never be found again and fishermen would lay their nets there. And guess what? Today, the city of Tyre is a wasteland of an old city where fishing boats come to rest and fishermen spread their nets to dry. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament talking about his place of birth and, and how he would die and, and the rejection that he would experience. And, and, and the prophecies were so exact and they were so, they were so minute that 
most critics would say, no, these were obviously written after the fact. They were written after 70 AD. There's no way that someone could have predicted these things to such great detail. And yet, that simply is not true. They were all written prior to the coming of Christ and were fulfilled as God had promised. What am I getting at? It's really to just reinforce your belief that the scripture you hold in your hand is trustworthy because it is authentic. It's not just a trans, it's not just a, a, dis, a kind of a, uh, a diluted version of what once was. No, the word of God that you hold in your hand is sacred. It is the word of God. We see that the scriptures are also eternal. Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers, the, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Why is that? Because the word of God is inseparable from God himself. Since God himself is eternal, then his words are likewise eternal. This brings us to our fourth affirmation, that the scriptures are immutable. There's a fancy theological term, right? Immutable just means to be unchangeable. Sometimes we just need to put things on the bottom shelf. It just means to be unchangeable. The scriptures are unchangeable. Why? Because God is unchangeable. And because God is unchangeable and his word cannot be separated from God himself, then likewise, the word cannot change. Even God himself says in Malachi 3, I am the Lord and I do not change. Now, I think this is a crucial point that we need to take a time out on because morality in our culture, especially today, has been on the constant change, right? If God doesn't change, and his word doesn't change, and his law doesn't change, and his rule doesn't change, and morality doesn't change, but yet what you would observe in our culture is that there's change is the, is the new thing. If it's not changing, it's something wrong. And what was right a generation ago is wrong today. And what was true a generation ago is, is untrue today. And not even a generation anymore. What was true a decade ago, last year even, is all of a sudden going, actually, maybe we got that wrong. But now we finally have come to this place. Now we know until next year happens. And then we know again. And I won't go into the whole political gamut of how much flip-flopping there has been. The fact is, though, God's moral law has never changed. It's never been open for debate or redefinition. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word and his law has been the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Now, some people might object and say this, that, you know, that the church got things wrong over the years, or maybe even thousands of years, and now we're finally getting it right. But may I just say to you as a way of caution before you jump into that hook, line, and sinker, Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says that to his young protege, Timothy, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such 
people. I think it's important that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, when someone brings to you, in a sense, a a new idea, we need to kind of take that very carefully. Listen, yes, but don't just accept it as if it's true. Because the fact is, I think more often than not, when someone presents something that is contrary to maybe thousands of years of even tradition, orthodox tradition on spiritual matters, we ought to be very skeptical. We ought to say, hmm, let's see, let's dive in. I'm listening, but I'm not accepting. We'll get to that more in just a moment. Fifth affirmation, because the word of God is inseparable from the person of God, then the word of God is also our final authority. The scriptures are authoritative for us. You know, we live in a time in which one's respect for authority has greatly diminished, right? It's been, in a lot of cases, or in certain realms, rejected altogether. John Feinberg, he actually offers a helpful quote or a clarifying quote when he says, the mood of our times is one of rampant individualism, emphasizing what is true for me. And that usually means whatever approach to life increases my enjoyment, reduces my pain and suffering and inconvenience. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Timothy 4, a chapter later from what I just read, he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Why, Timothy, are you to be devoted to the preaching of the word? He says, be ready in season and out of season because a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What Paul is actually bringing to the forefront for us, for Timothy as well as for us today, is this. He says, in the last days, people will surround themselves with other people that tell them what they want to hear. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? They'll surround themselves with people that tell them what they already think or what they already believe. They, they want to they be around people that, t- that tell them truths and teach them truths that make them feel good, that promote ideas that allow people to feel justified and especially not guilty about pursuing their own passions in life. According to Paul, this propensity to surround ourselves with these kinds of people that tell us what we want to hear will be very, very common. I recall when I was working on the pipeline, uh, one, of the, one of the crew members that I worked with earlier on, uh, she was a professing believer, and, uh, and we, so I was like, oh, that's so great, you know, it's like there was three believers in the 10 years that I had worked on the pipeline, so it was like anybody that was like somewhat re- favorable to religious conversations, I was like, oh, this is a breath of fresh air, sort of, because this young lady was basically, yeah, I'm a professing believer, but you know, the Bible is somewhat relative and she, very, she pursued it in a very subjective way, meaning that she, uh, she liked some parts and she didn't like other parts. So she chose basically, here's the parts I like because this is what I already think and believe. 
And the parts I don't like or I don't want to believe, I've just kind of dismissed altogether. And so she picked and chose kind of in a syncretistic fashion. Here's what I choose to believe and everything else, let's just say it's just not there. I was like, well, that's very convenient, isn't it? To pick and choose what you want. And it's oftentimes even in the churches we go to, right? It's very common for, you know, Gen Z generation to go, I'm looking for a church that tells me what I already think. Not looking for a church that confronts me with my wrong thinking. Not a church that will make, might confront me with my flawed thinking. I want to find a church that tells me what I already think I know. Again, how do we know what we know? If we're honest with ourselves and we exude some degree of humility, we all would say, all of us fall short. And all our theology will one day be corrected in the presence of Jesus. The fact is, though, the Bible is authoritative. And so we must surrender to the authority of Scripture. If God, who is the highest authority, has given us his word, then it must have final authority over us. Sixth, and very quickly, the scriptures, therefore, are supreme. What this means is we must turn to the Bible for verification and validation of any truth claim about God and his redemptive work. Remember how Paul praised the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, right? Paul came in with all these teachings, and then they go, wow, you're a smart guy. Everything you said is true. No, they said, what he said, he said he praised them because they received the word with eagerness. By the way, receiving with eagerness doesn't mean they adopted with eagerness. They received with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul was talking about was actually true. And so he praised them for going, hey, you searched the scriptures, you scoured the scriptures, and because of that, you go, yeah, that seems to resonate with exactly what was prophesied about. As I said, I would revisit this point a little bit later. I think it's important for us, church family, to just because a book is published doesn't mean it's authoritative. And just because your favorite author writes something and publishes something doesn't mean it's thus saith the Lord. I think it's easy and it's understandable. There's certain people that we identify with very closely. We kind of let our hair down so to speak, right? We are less guarded when we approach certain authors or certain preachers or certain, you know, influential people go, oh yeah, yeah, whatever they write, I, I, I soak up, I absorb like a sponge. Can I just caution you somewhat? I'm not saying don't receive what the Lord may have through this author to you, but be very careful from not still reading with a critical mind. Not critical, not being judgmental necessarily, but reading with an eye that says, like the Brians, is that really true? After all, we're all fallible. And even the best of the best are fallible. And many times I've talked to preachers that have been preaching for 40, 50, 60 years, a life of ministry, and in and, and, and their humility they're saying, yeah, what I used to advocate is not so much what I advocate today. What I used to preach dogmatically is, you know what, my, my theology is adjusted a little bit. Or maybe radically. 
not on issues of gospel necessarily, but on other extraneous issues. And so just be very careful how quickly we adopt just because someone says, just because the pastor preaches doesn't mean you go, oh, he said it, it must be true. Search the scriptures. That is the supreme and therefore authoritative authority. That is the filter by which we filter all truth claims in life. Seventh and finally, the scriptures are infallible for rule of faith and practice. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Paul again says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for many things, teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, equipping us for every good work. In other words, the Bible is supreme and it is authoritative and because of that, whatever the Bible teaches, we do. Whatever the Bible commands us to do, we do. The Bible supersedes any man's authority or church tradition that is not supported in Scripture, especially our personal biases. So what is the first statement in our statement of faith? Let me just say it again. We believe the Holy Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to be verbally inspired by God. And that it is both eternal, immutable, supreme, authoritative, authentic, and the infallible rule of faith in practice. Why does this matter? Other than what I've already said so far? Well, first and foremost, this matters Because any other sermon that follows this sermon on our statement of faith has no grounding or foundation unless we first understand that it's the scriptures that define to us anything of spiritual concern. In other words, if we have a a lesser view of scripture, then anything else that's exerted as a truth claim will all have some seed of doubt. And so it's important that we go, yes, I can trust the scriptures. I can trust the truthfulness of scripture. I can trust that God's word that I hold in my hands today is in fact consistent with the original autographs. I'm not saying it's 100%. I'm saying this, that God has superintended over his word to us and that what we needed for our life and for godliness today, he has kept sacred, he has kept pure, and we can rest in his sovereign hand. We do not need to doubt. Satan is the source of doubt. God is not. God is all-powerful, and he loves you, and he wants you to know. He wants you to know him. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants you to understand the things that matter most in life. Secondly, if we do not come under the divine authority of God's word, then the only other alternative option is that we are the divine authority. There's only two options when we come to what, who is the final authority. Either we surrender ourselves to an objective standard called the scriptures, or we become that ultimate authority. And now scripture is always 
on trial as to what we deem as true and not true. That's a dangerous place to be because we're fickle people. What I felt yesterday, I don't feel today. Sometimes what I think last week is not necessarily what I think today. And we need an objective standard that we are coming to that never changes. That is always true regardless of my emotional well-being in the moment, regardless of what's going on on a cultural scene, regardless of what's going on in politics and in the courts and the justice system and all those different things. God's word is faithful, it's consistent, it's true, it's everlasting. Third and finally, the Holy Spirit works through the word of God to transform our lives and to free us from sin and death. Could I just say this very briefly? There is no option B when it comes to our growth in godliness. There's no option B when it comes to our growth in godliness. If we are to grow in godliness, to grow in faith, we must, the word of God must be central and consistent in our lives. Most of us in here would acknowledge that. I know that. But in practice, do we know that? The spirit of God takes the word of God to penetrate one's hearts. Transformation is all through the renewing of the mind through the word of God. Because it's not just words, either black ink or red ink on a page of some sort of harvested tree. It's divine. It's eternal. It's how God moves in our hearts and makes us more like him. So may we be like Joshua and heed the words that God sent to Joshua or gave to Joshua and Joshua 1 before he led the people into the promised land. This is on my wall in my office. I see it every day. Be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess the land that I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. Be strong and very courageous and be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it, meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything in it. Only then will you prosper and only then will you succeed in all that you do. May we be fervent like God charged Joshua before he began, began his ministry. May we be fervent and diligent in the word of God. It's the word of God that changes people. It's the word of God that changes us. It's the word of God because the word of God is God. It ushers in his presence. It's him that speaks when we open those pages of scripture. I'm going to pray for us. And as Steve comes up, we have one final song in closing. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you, do not leave, you didn't leave us, in a sense, orphaned from the truth. 
You didn't abandon us to figure it out. But Father, you have given us your eternal and divine word. And you've kept it pure and sacred for thousands and thousands of years. And you did that so you could, that we might know you. And out of knowing you, that we might come into a saving relationship with you. So Father, I just pray that we would be diligent, that we'd be faithful. If the practice or the diligence of spending time with you through the word is not true of our lives to date, Father, may today be a change. May today we say, nope, I'm changing my rhythm. I'm changing my routine because I am in desperate need to hear the words of eternal life. Father, thank you for that we can rest in the trustworthiness of Scripture. May our lives be radically changed because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.